0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature, does not take into consideration your personal situation or circumstances. So we have two... Announcements? Do we want to call yeah. them announcements? <laughs> yeah. Announcements well, Yeah. Well, one is an announcement. One is just a piece of information, right? Mm-hmm. So Spotify has changed the way that they alert you about new podcasts. Mm-hmm. So if you listen on Spotify, you can go in and what do you click? A bell?
1: Yeah. It's like a little bell a next little... to the follow button.
0: Yeah. So if you... And if you
1: haven't clicked the follow button, click that too. Yeah. <laughs>
0: click the follow button. Shani <laughs> likes to check the stats on that. But then if you click that bell, you'll be alerted when we have a new episode. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, and I stumbled through this at the end of our last podcast, but we have an Instagram page. Mm-hmm. And as I said, to repeat, we have an Instagram page. It is going to be taken away from us <laughs> if we don't have enough followers. So we have a deadline to get 300 followers.
1: By October. Right.
0: And we have, as we sit here, 117. Yeah. Yeah. So we need more followers. So if you would like to follow our Instagram page, we would appreciate it. Mm-hmm. So it is
1: <laughs> Morningstar Investor AU.
0: Exactly. So go on there, follow us. We do have, I think, some good information on there. But of course, I'm biased.
1: Okay. So let's start the episode, maybe. Let's do it. Okay. So we had a competition a little while ago for a book, which proves really popular. And we always get asked for a list of book recommendations, which we love.
0: That is true, Shawnee. So. We, of course, believe that educating yourself and being able to make informed decisions about your investments and your portfolio is one of the best things you can do to help yourself as an investor. So today we're going to do the heavy lifting for you, and we're going to go through the lessons of a popular investing book. And periodically, we'll come back and do this again. And I I imagine like in school... Mm-hmm. This is what happened to you. Like you were the person that people cheated and talked <laughs> Yeah, I was a cliffs of. notes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Me not so much. I was uh, I was the other side of things. But uh, but yeah, that's what we're doing today, exactly. Uh,
1: yeah, and I I mean I told Mark that we could definitely pull some lessons from Harry Potter, like investing lessons, but <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> he didn't like that. So why don't we start with The Outsiders by William Thorndike? The year that this came out, 2012, it was number one on Buffett's recommended reading list in his annual shareholder letter for Berkshire Hathaway, so we know that Buffett approves. Thorndike himself is a founder and managing director of Housatonic Partners. How's Housatonic Partners? I keep asking Mark how to pronounce this. But Housatonic. <laughs> Housatonic, um, which is a private equity firm. He's a graduate of Harvard and Stanford, and has been the director of eight companies and two not-for-profits. The Outsiders goes through eight unconventional CEOs and their approaches to capital allocation that led the companies that they lead to success. And this is a pretty different take when we're looking at books that explore investing approaches. Mark briefly mentioned this book in the second episode of our Influencer series, but he put it pretty well what the outsider's provides is perspective because at some point it is good to know that you're investing in a real company and that being a contrarian might actually pay off.
0: Well, that that was a little bit of a compliment.
1: Yeah.
0: You did say pretty well. I did. I, I'll compliment you. <laughs> we had to do multiple takes on that because Shani couldn't say huscatonic.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry about that.
0: Yeah. No, it's good you gave you gave Thorndike's whole resume. It's kind of like, you know, looking in the mirror. Right? I
1: did. It was really exhausting. Yeah, <laughs> <with> yeah, <you. laughs>
0: exactly. Well, let's talk about his book. So, We're going to go through some of our favorite lessons from his book. And it looks at a group of eight CEOs, as Shawnee said. And one of the proofs that Thorndike likes to use is the average return these eight CEOs earned, especially compared to the S and P 500 and also returned to Jack or also compared to Jack Welch. So he, of course, is the famous CEO of GE who achieved a pretty phenomenal 20% per annum return in the stock over the 20 years that he was there. And over the same time period, the S&P 500 averaged 14%. But if we look at these eight CEOs, I guess the proof is in the pudding because they average 30% a year.
1: Yeah, that's pretty phenomenal. And what Thorndike explores in this book is what these CEOs had in common. There are eccentric similarities like the headquarters of their operations in not-so-typical places. So we have Denver, Omaha, Los Angeles, St. Louis, to name a few far removed from the financial epicenters of the US, like New York, and that a lot of these CEOs were notoriously frugal, humble, and understated. So there were no flashy cars, rants on Twitter, celebrity love interests, et cetera. But that's not what we're here for. We're here for how they averaged that 30% over double the return of the S&P 500. So let's hear it, Mark.
0: Yeah. I mean, to be fair, most of these CEOs worked when there was no Twitter.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's true.
0: But they probably wouldn't. They probably wouldn't rant on
1: no, it. No, so. no, I don't think so.
0: Yeah. Well, so Thorndike took a step back. So rather than that sort of list of celebrity CEO traits that Shawnee came back, Thorndike t- or Shawnee talked about. Thorndike took a step back and he looked at what CEOs need to do, and he basically boiled it down to they need to do two things really well. First is run their operations efficiently, and the second is deploy the cash generated. So let's take a look at the second part of this. CEOs have five choices for deploying capital. They can invest it in existing operations, they can acquire other companies, they can issue dividends, they can pay down debt, and they can repurchase shares.
1: And they've got three ways of raising capital. So they can tap internal cash flow, issue debt, or raise equity. So when you break it down into those points, it makes their job seem pretty simple.
0: And as we said before, this book is about how these CEOs allocated capital to great success. And the commonalities, Um, that we see between these eight different CEOs. And that is that they understand capital allocation was their most important job, which is always a good place to start. And they focused on per share value and cash flow and not earnings per share.
1: So let's unpack those points. One of the CEOs that had a laser focus on capital allocation was Henry Singleton at Teledyne. He was a CEO for 30 years and led the company to be one of the most successful conglomerates in the U.S., he and his co-founder, George Kazmetsky took this company from their initial investment of $450,000 to a company with annual sales of over $450 million, annual profit of $20 million, and stock market value of about $1.15 billion. He was extremely focused on capital allocation and successful at it too. Buffett has said that he considers Dr. Singleton the best at operating and capital deployment in the history of American business. Singleton was in a league of his own when it came to buying back stock one of the levers that CEOs can pull with capital allocation.
0: So before we get into what he did, let's start with what a share buyback is and why that benefits shareholders. A share is an ownership stake in a company. So if there are 100 shares outstanding, that means that there are 100 ownership stakes. And as an investor, if I own one share, then I own 1% of the company. So I'm always interested in my share of anything the company does. Company earns $100 in a year. My portion of that is $1. That is why we report things like earnings and dividends as per share numbers, a dividend of $0.35 a share or earnings of $1 a share.
1: So as an owner of a company that is concerned with my portion of anything the company makes, I should obviously be focused on how many ownership stakes there are. If there are more shares outstanding, my ownership stake is less, and if there are less shares outstanding, then my ownership stake is more. Companies issue more shares if they want to raise capital, if they use stock options or shares to compensate employees, or if they issue more shares to fund an acquisition. The number of shares outstanding is reduced if they buy back those shares. All that buyback means is that the company goes out to the stock market and buys shares. This can either work through a formal tender offer where the company asks who wants their shares purchased, or just behind the scenes on the open market. If we go back to that original example and the company purchased 20% of shares, there would, th- there would then be 80 shares outstanding. That means that my one share would mean that I own 1.25% of the company. If the company earned that same $100 a share, their earnings per share would now be $1.25 per share.
0: So when we look at Teledyne, as Shani said before, Singleton had an unmatched enthusiasm for buying back stock. And his approach was different from the way other CEOs generally do it. So there's two different ways you can buy back stock. The most common way is that a company will allocate a small percentage of excess cash on its balance sheet to repurchase the shares and do this over a long period of time, and they'll just go out into the open market and buy it back. And these buybacks occur regardless of the valuation levels, and in many cases are just used to try and deal with dilution that comes from issuing options as part of executive compensation. So why don't we use Facebook as an example? So Facebook bought back $6.2 billion of shares in 2020. At the beginning of the year, Facebook had a diluted weighted average number of shares outstanding of two point eight eight billion. At the end of the year, they had two point nine billion. So what happened? It means that more shares were issued that year, either as compensation or to acquire other companies. Either way as shareholders, what seemed like a massive return of capital didn't actually pan out.
1: Then there's another approach that is used by Singleton and other CEOs that are in this book. The approach is less frequent and larger share buybacks that are made when stock prices are low. They're often in very short time frames, and because it's when the share prices are low, sometimes it doesn't coincide with cash sitting on the balance sheet, so it's sometimes funded by debt. So the long and short of it is large quantities for their buybacks, not timed when it's convenient for the business, but when it's a good opportunity to buy shares. There are quite a few CEOs in the book that followed the same approach, but Singleton did this eight times. The time that he did this in 1980 was a perfect example of how he executed these buybacks. So let's go through it. In May of 1980, Teledyne's PE multiple was almost as low as it had ever been. Singleton initiated the company's largest tender that was oversubscribed threefold. Singleton bought all of the tendered shares, which was about 20% of all the outstanding shares.
0: He decided to finance the entire repurchase with fixed rate debt for a few reasons, But the main reasons were that the company had strong free cash flow and interest rates had recently dropped, but not for long. After the repurchase, interest rates rose sharply and the price of newly issued bonds fell. And he wanted to seize his opportunity here. He didn't think that interest rates were going to continue to rise. So he decided that this was the time to purchase the bonds and retire them using the money from the company's pension fund, which was not taxed on investment gains. Let's go through the result of the strategy. Teledyne finances a large stock repurchase with inexpensive debt. This inexpensive debt is repurchased and retired by the pension fund, and the pension fund realized tax-free investment gains on its bond purchases when interest rates subsequently fell.
1: Yeah, and adding to this, Teledyne's stock price appreciated pretty significantly. Over 10 years, an investor would have made a return of 40%.
0: And this embodies who he was as a CEO. He was very similar to Buffett in that they both saw themselves as investors instead of the traditional managerial CEOs, and this allowed them to focus on capital allocation instead of operations. Morningstar Premium is designed to help you reach your investing goals. Our coverage spans over 50,000 securities and 2,000 funds and ETFs. Sign up to a four-week free trial through the link in the episode notes to access our global equity best ideas for our top picks across borders. Find shares with sustainable, above-average dividend payouts, and the best opportunities at home with five-star Aussie stocks. A Morningstar Premium subscription includes a Shareside Investor Plan, allowing you to track all of your investment holdings in one place. And take advantage of Shareside's investment performance and tax reporting that has been built specifically for the needs of self-directed investors. If you love premium after your four-week trial and choose to subscribe, your subscription may be tax-deductible if you derive income from the share market. Sign up for a free trial today.
1: So what can you take from this as an investor? What we take from this, as much as dividends get us all going, a dividend is only one lever that a CEO can pull to create value for a shareholder. The other important lesson is that the way that buybacks are executed by many companies may not add much in shareholder value if they occur when share prices are really high and when they are offset by share delusion. So, just remember that there are a multitude of other ways that they can deploy capital to create this value. And Singleton is a case study in how a focus and understanding of capital allocation can generate multiples of value versus paying out capital.
0: And Morningstar Equity research analysts rate all companies on their assessment of the quality of management's capital allocation. And this is the aptly named capital <laughs> allocation rating
1: creative name. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Exactly. The assessment focuses on a firm's balance sheet, investment, and shareholder distributions.
1: And when they're making a determination of the rating, they consider the investment strategy and valuation, balance sheet management, and dividend and share buyback policies. And it's based on a forward-looking, absolute basis. So after this, they're given a rating, either exemplary, standard, or poor. And most companies do fall into standard because for the most part, most managers won't be exceptionally strong or poor in terms of capital allocation. So we'll go through two examples of poor and exemplary. That's it within our coverage. And let's start with the bad news first, and that's AMP. Our analyst Sean assigned a poor capital allocation rating to AMP because of their poorly executed strategy that has cost shareholders dearly in the recent past, specifically pointing to AMP's apathy to improve its battered corporate governance and culture and a series of poor executive appointments that inhibited the turnaround.
0: As well as this, they've also had a history of poor capital allocation. We're referring to the 2011 acquisition of AXA, which was detrimental to shareholders. Few of the reasons being that AMP was plagued by higher than expected claims, lapse policies that culminated in large after tax losses, and a fall in underlying EPS over time, partly due to dilution from the nearly 700 million new AMP shares issued for the acquisition.
1: We're just not confident that AMP can generate value to shareholders. It's focused on simplifying itself and investing in higher returning assets in their corporate strategy, but they've got many hurdles in the way that we just don't think they can overcome without difficulty. Like the controversial CEO appointment in A&P Capital we've spoken about a few times in Investing Compass, it sparked criticism and a number of board, executive, and analyst departures. It was a bit of a domino effect from there because now they're facing redemption requests, external managers who seek to control its funds, risks of being unable to raise funds, and negative ratings from asset consultants.
0: Yeah. So, messy.
1: Yeah. Very messy. <laughs> so, we don't believe that we're going to see sustained net inflows and operating margin improvements. And we're going to have to see a little bit more clarity on future strategy, reduced turnover, and improved fund ratings on the journey there.
0: Okay. So, let's move to an example the other end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. which is like- The good news. Yeah. Which is like going from me to you. right? <laughs> in very almost, nice, in yeah. almost every way. So, <laughs> Why don't we use an example of something that we classify as exemplary capital allocation, and we'll use CSL as the example. Mm -hmm. So they've earned this rating based on our analyst's assessment of balance sheet risk, investment efficiency, and shareholder distribution. So CSL's balance sheet is in pretty good condition. They don't have much financial risk because they have low revenue cyclicality, and product demand is being driven by chronic conditions.
1: Their investment efficacy is exemplary. They've sustainably generated a return on invested capital, or or ROIC, at or above 19% as we forecast this to continue. In 2015, CSL acquired the loss-making Novartis influenza vaccine, and they were able to acquire it at a fire sale price. They merged this with their existing vaccine business and built a profitable business at scale. The result of this is CSL is now the world's second largest influencer vaccine business, so a really good decision in hindsight and good strategic allocation of capital to leverage an existing part of the business through a smart, cheap acquisition. So hopefully this gives you some understanding through both of these examples, the relationship between strategic decision-making and capital allocation with shareholder interests. We look at the balance sheet, investment, and shareholder distributions.
0: Was it nice to talk about a different vaccine? Yeah,
1: it was refreshing. (laughs) Yeah, do
0: you remember influenza, the good old days? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Okay, well, anyway, (laughs) let's move on to the next characteristics that these CEOs had in common. They all place emphasis on per share value instead of earnings or sales growth. This may seem like common sense, but many CEOs focus more on empire building. They want to manage more people and bigger companies. They want to make acquisitions. One CEO that Thorndike speaks about in The Outsiders is Bill Anders, who is CEO at General Dynamics. Over the course of seven years, Anders, and then his successor, James Meller, sought to streamline the business. They started by shedding non-core assets and focused on the business units that were strong, that had higher profitability, and higher margin.
1: This systematic streamlining and shrinking of the business was because Anders really wanted to focus on shareholder returns. He cared about... Per share value that he could create from a lean business that earnings or se- then earnings or sales growth, and what he also did was while they were overhauling the business, they kept an eye out on the share price. When the stock was trading at a discount, they repurchased large numbers, like Singleton at Teledyne.
0: There are a few more commonalities that Thorndike brings to our attention. Independent thinking is very important. Sometimes the best investment opportunity is your own stock, and that decentralized organizations are great for keeping costs down. And the ownership energizes people. Managers in the field create a lot more value with autonomy. And that, of course, helps with retention.
1: So let's talk about one more factor, and that's that these CEOs were focused on cash flow and not on reported earnings. These CEOs really wanted their businesses to generate cash, and one of them was John Malone from TCI. John was leading a business that was a cable TV company, which requires big investments in infrastructure to grow as the cable networks needed to be expanded to access new customers. These cable networks are assets that have to be held on the balance sheet, which means that they need to be depreciated or slowly written off over their useful life. These depreciation expenses are charges against earnings, which means that they lower earnings. So it was faced with this dilemma. Investors wanted to see high earnings, but to grow and scale the business, they needed to invest in bigger networks that lowered earnings.
0: So John decided that he was going to focus on what was needed to grow the business. And for the cable industry, it was more important to look at cash flow rather than earnings. He ignored what Wall Street focused on and instead decided that he was going to focus on earnings before interest depreciation and taxes or EBITDA. And EBITDA is essentially the cash flow that's available for shareholders. That cash can then be used to benefit all those shareholders.
1: I think the real takeaway here is that as an investor, you really need to understand the companies and industries that you're investing in. That allows you to focus on the right things. In this case, the cable industry was really asset-heavy and took a lot of upfront investment to build out a network that would then generate future cash flows.
0: So we hope that today's episode provides you with a couple insights from a really valuable book. To be a successful investor is to be a student of business, and these case studies of these unconventional CEOs is a great lesson in business. Can't get better than average results by doing the same thing as everyone else. And these CEOs all came up with approaches designed to succeed in their specific industries. They all focus on what was in the best interest of shareholders, the cash that was generated and how it was spent. Being contrarian is hard because you lose the validation that comes from traveling with the herd. But I think this book is a bit of an inspiration since on this podcast, we try and always question the conventional wisdom that drives so many investing decisions. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. We would love any comments or any feedback you want to provide directly to my email address, which is in the show notes, and of course, to share this with your friends and family. Any final words, Shani? I know you love it when I ask you this.
1: I do actually have some final words today, which is to go and follow our Instagram account so we can beat that 300 follower mark. So it's Morningstar Investor AU.
0: There we go. There we go. So thank you guys for joining. We will be back soon. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited, without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.